Good morning. If you would take your Bible and turn to Psalm 36. Psalm 36. We are entering the the tail end of our study of the Psalms this summer, uh, with Chris wrapping things up next week with uh, the second part of Psalm 51. This morning we're going to look at Psalm 36. So this past Friday, I went uh, running in the Chickamauga battlefield. It was a hot day, and I decided to swing back by my car to grab a drink and a popsicle before I finished uh, the last couple of miles that I had. Because it was midday and the sun was beating down, I decided that I would finish my run on the trails there because we provide some extra shade that I had not had so far at that point. So as I was on the trails, I was about to get to the point where I was going to turn around, and then all of a sudden, to my right, in a tree, was an owl, which uh, is not very common in the battlefield. Sometimes I've seen them probably five or less times uh, in the times that I've been in the battlefield. Well, the owl didn't want to be near me, and so as soon as it saw me, it flew from the tree right on the edge of the trail to a tree probably 50 feet uh, on the other, you know, into the woods, basically. So I pulled out my phone and uh, uh, tried to get a picture, but unfortunately there were enough branches and leaves and things in the way that I really couldn't focus and get a good picture of the owl that I wanted to, to prove that, hey, I saw this really cool looking owl on the battlefield. Um, <clears throat> what I needed at that moment to get a better look at it was something to change. I needed some of the clutter to move out of the way, some of those branches or, or trees, or I needed to change my position so that I could see it better. Uh, What our passage this morning is going to help us do, with the help of the Holy Spirit, is to adjust our focus so that we can more more clearly see the glory of God. Unlike what happened with me and the owl, God hasn't changed. He hasn't moved. Uh, Often uh, there are things that distract us from fixing our gaze on Him, and this is one way that the Psalms help us. We get busy with life. There are assignments to finish, work projects to complete. Um, errands to run, the grass needs to be cut, and we can find ourselves going from one thing to another, and we might get distracted and need to kind of need to refocus and need to, to have our, our gaze on Christ recalibrated. We're prone to forget what we really are before Him. We forget how glorious He is. We forget the blessings that come with walking with Him, and we forget our need for His protection, guidance, and care. Uh, Richard Wells said, "It's easy to be too busy for the Psalms." We are fascinated with ourselves, and the Psalms are fascinated with God. This is true of the passage that we're going to spend time in this morning. We see in it, David is fascinated with the glory of God, and we get, and we get a look at that to help us refocus on him. So it's my prayer this morning that with the Lord's help, we'll refocus on the glory of God this morning in Psalm 36. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we can come to you this morning, that you hear us. We're thankful that you've given us your word, that you love us. We praise you because you are righteous, you're holy, because your steadfast love doesn't end. I pray that you'd help us now as we look at your word. Help us to grow, help us to fix our gaze on you, and help us to walk in the fear of the Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning in Psalm 36, we're going to see that our righteous God shines a light on his steadfast love and highlights our need to turn our focus towards him. In the passage this morning, we're going to see three main points. First, in verse 1 through verse 4, we'll see a sobering diagnosis. 
And then the second point we'll see that contrasted with a picture of God's glory, verse 5 through verse 9. And then that will lead us to a prayer of faith, verse 10 through verse 12. So our approach this morning will be we're going to just take it one section at a time and work our way through, and then we'll move on to the next section. So we'll start this morning uh, with verse 1 through verse 4, where we see a sobering diagnosis. To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. So in these first four verses, David is lamenting what he sees in the state of the, of the wicked. We aren't given a specific context in this psalm um, like we are with some others as far as a situation that might have prompted David to write uh, this psalm. But what he does say here in the first four verses is true of all who are outside of Christ. He does this for the sake of contrast with what's to come when the focus shifts to the glory of God in verse 5 through verse 9. So let's start with verse 1. Rather than being driven by and focused on the fear of the Lord, the wicked are motivated to transgress God's law. So when we see the word transgress, the idea that should pop into our head is to cross a line. So there's a line here that God says, this is where you can't go or you shouldn't go, and we step over that line. We transgress. And we, we cross that line or standard set forth by the Lord in his word. David says here that transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Transgression is rooted deep in the heart of the wicked. He also says that there is no fear of God before his eyes. The fear of God does not drive them in what they do. The phrase before, her, before his eyes, what he focuses on is himself or other things. This phrase here, the fear of the Lord, there's no fear of God before his eyes. This is quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 3 in the passage that we read just a little bit ago, kind of as a summary or conclusion of what Paul is is driving at in Romans 3, that there is none righteous, no, not one. So the fear of the Lord does not describe the lens through which this person looks. Um, To to use an illustration, uh, my glasses are before my eyes and shape all that I see in a good way, right? If I took my glasses off, I couldn't read my Bible up here. If I was driving, I wouldn't be able to read the road signs until I was about this far away from them. Um, They shape what I see. Because he doesn't keep the fear of the Lord before him, the the wicked, his view view, um, is, is not good. Uh, his view of what is good, right, and true is distorted, which will lead him to lead to rotten fruit, which we will see. If we want to go the way that the Lord has for us, we must start with the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So a question for us to ask ourselves, does walking in the fear of the Lord describe who you are and what you want, and what you want to do? Or are you more interested in going your own way? So examine your own heart and and the fear of the Lord. Are you being driven by a fear of the Lord? Is the fear of the Lord before your eyes? Or is it more like what uh, what David's calling out here in verse 1? There's no fear of God before his eyes. Next we see that the wicked are self-deceived about their own sin. Verse 2. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. 
The wicked flatter themselves. When we think about what flattery is, it's of course an exaggerated or false praise. Um, It often works for us or we often fall victim to it because of our own pride. We want to believe it. And why is flattery so dangerous? Because it sets a trap for our own feet. If you think about some of the the TV uh, singing competition shows that you might have seen. I haven't seen any of those in a really long time, but I'm sure they're still out there. Uh, But I remember different uh, ones of those where someone will get up on stage or in front of the judges or whoever, and they'll sing and think that they did the best job in the world. And the judges will tell them, no, I'm sorry, that wasn't the best best, uh, rendition of that song that I've ever heard. And often they're very disappointed and let down. And sometimes that's because they've had family members, friends, co-workers, whomever, that have told them that they're going to be the next Elvis Presley. And so they get up there thinking that that's what they're going to do, and then they're, they're let down. Um, they're, that flattery has not helped them. That isn't true, of course, all the time, but that, that does seem to be true in, in some cases. But here we see that what David is saying about the wicked is they're not just listening to flattery from other people. They're listening to flattery that they're telling, or they're, listening, they're telling themselves things and they're flattering themselves so that they, their sin cannot be found out and hated. Here they flatter themselves and falsely believe that they're without sin. And this is intended to show the foolishness of turning away from the Lord to listen to ourselves. So we might want to ask ourselves or think, has there been a time where we tried to explain away our own sin to cover it up in our own mind? Maybe we made a selfish decision or uh, a thoughtless word that affected someone and then tried to explain it away as if it was no big deal to try to cover it up in our own mind. That's the example that we have here that David's saying. There's, they, fl- they flatter themselves in their own eyes that their iniquity cannot be found out and hated. So they're self-deceived. Next we see verse 3 and verse 4. The wickedness of heart leads to rotten fruit. Um, the Grace and True Study Bible says the heart of the wicked is a polluted spring, uh, as it says here. <clears throat> so we have a progression in verse 1 through verse 4. We start with the heart, then the eyes, the mouth, and the actions is what we see here in focus in these two verses. Their words so trouble and deceit. Their actions are corrupt. They're plotting trouble on their bed. So it's the first thing in the morning that they think of uh, when they, they open their eyes and the last thing that they think of before they close their eyes. Proverbs 4, 16 says, For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. They're on the wrong path, and then they approve evil, or they do not reject evil. So if we think about this idea of being on the wrong path, it reminded me of uh, the first time that our family saw a bear in Cades Cove in uh, the Smoky Mountains National Park. And if you've not been to Cades Cove, it's a big 11-mile loop that you drive around. You can see the mountains, you can see wildlife and, and those kinds of things. As we neared the end of the, the loop, there was, um, there's a field. Uh, we're in our car, so we're driving around. There, there's a field, and we look out, and there's a couple of bears. There's a mom and at least one baby. Maybe, maybe it was two babies. I can't remember. It was quite a while ago. Um, so we're, we're sitting there, of course. We're taking pictures from a safe distance. We're watching the bears, and there's a field, and then behind the field, there's a, a clump of trees. So as we're sitting there, out of the clump of trees come two men. They were dressed almost 
exactly as you would see a uh, tourist portrayed on TV, a TV show or movie. They had on, I believe it was probably khaki shorts, a Hawaiian shirt. They had cameras around their neck. The mama bear was kind of walking towards the cars, and so they're kind of sneaking up on the bears, <laughs> which uh, is not a good idea. <laughs> they were on a path that was not good. They thought that what they were doing was... They're going to get this picture and prove to everybody that they saw a bear in the national park or whatever, um, but they're walking towards them, and the car started moving again, and we didn't hang around to see the end of the story there, but they were on a bad path. If they had snuck up on that mama and she didn't realize they were there, then, of course, they would have been in, in some big trouble. Um, that's what the, the idea here is. That they're on the wicked. They're on a bad path. They're going against all wisdom, against the fear of the Lord, but they just keep going uh, regardless. And that's what those men, uh, those men were like. So in summary, to try to pull this sobering diagnosis together from the first four verses, the wicked person is focused on himself instead of on the fear of the Lord. He lives as if God doesn't exist. He does not believe himself or herself to be guilty of sin. Her words plant trouble like a farmer plants seeds that lead to rotten fruit. He does things that are corrupt, makes plans that cause problems, and is walking on the wrong path. So this is not someone that we would want to cross paths with. This is a sobering diagnosis for us, though, because we need to recognize that this is talking about all of us without Christ. And we can see why, here, we can see why David here would have wanted the Lord's help and is lamenting that this is, is what's happening. So just kind of thinking about application here, as we're calibrating our focus, we need to understand ourselves accurately. In the first four verses here, we have a sobering reminder of who we are without Christ. We need to run to Christ. So if you're here today and you have not trusted Jesus, let this truth of this passage sink in and help you to recognize that you can't save yourself. Our sin separates us from God. As we read this morning from Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We can't do enough good things to make up for our sin. The Bible teaches us that the only way for us to be forgiven is to cry out to God in repentance and faith in Jesus. But the good news is, is that He listens and He will save. For all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if that describes you, if you're here and you have not trusted Christ and want to talk about that, come to me or Bill or Chris. We'd love to talk with you more about that. For those of us here who are in Christ, we might be tempted towards self-righteousness at times, and this is a humbling reminder for us. Are we tempted to make excuses for our sin, to try to flatter ourselves and to explain it away? Are we tempted to lean on our own understanding? Are we tempted to trust the good things that we've done rather than what Christ has done for us? Take a moment and examine your heart. Before we look at the next section, I want to take a brief moment to consider how verse 1 through 4 and verse 5 through 9 relate to each other because it might seem kind of like an, a pretty abrupt change. When we take a step back and look at the big picture, it's clear what David is trying to do is to highlight the contrast between the wickedness of man and the glory and righteousness of God. And that's what we're going to see here in verse 5 through verse 9 is a picture of God's glory. In contrast to the corruption of man, we see the glory of our Lord in his character and how he relates to his children. So let's read verse 5 through verse 9 together. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. 
Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So we'll divide this up into two sections. Uh, In verse 5 and verse 6, we see the character of God. We see who he is. This is poetic language being used here to convey truth about God that's really difficult for us to fully comprehend. So like a diamond with many facets, David is examining the splendor of God. Like a jeweler would take a gem and turn it and examine its its facets and and look at it in in different ways. This is what David is doing here. The first thing we see here is how far does the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord go? How far does the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord go? We see that the steadfast love of the Lord extends to the heavens. The Lord's steadfast love is longer and wider than we can fathom. The word for steadfast love here is hesed, which we, you might have heard before. It's used three different times here in this psalm. It refers to God's faithful covenant-keeping love. It's used in other places in the psalms, like Psalm 136, uh, which repeats the phrase, um, for his steadfast love endures forever, uh, repeatedly. <clears throat> we see here that his steadfast love stretches higher than we can comprehend. God makes promises and fulfills them. He loves us faithfully. God is faithful and will always act according to his character. So if we imagine that the steadfast love of the Lord could be measured on a line, it would stretch from here to the sun, to the next star, to the next star, and keep going, and then also stretch in the, in the opposite direction as well. His steadfast love is never going to run out. Spurgeon said that towards his own servants especially, in the salvation of the Lord Jesus, he has displayed grace higher than the heaven of heavens and wider than the universe. There, there are going to be many things that change for us in our 60, 70, 80, or 90 years, Lord willing. Uh, the steadfast love of the Lord will not change. His steadfast love and faithfulness go further than we can comprehend for longer than we can comprehend. And that's what David wants to have us meditate on and wants to, to sink in for us this morning. Next we see uh, David asking or emphasizing um, more elements of God's character. Is he good? Is he wise? Is he going to change? He says that his righteousness is like the mountains of God. What is righteousness? We see that in God's righteousness, he always acts in accordance with his character. He's good and right and true. Wayne Grudem said that God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard for what is right. So God's always going to act according to what is right, and he's always going to be the standard for what is right. So I think it's important for us to think a little bit more about what's being said here in this comparison about God's righteousness being like the mountains. So if I were to ask you to draw a picture this morning of a majestic mountain range, what would it look like? Of course, there are different levels of skill and art and drawing in this room. Some of us would draw something that looks pretty simple and basic. That would be me. (laughs) Uh, Some of us would draw something that looks more like, you know, Mount Everest in the Himalayas. 
but in general, it's going to have a lot of the, a lot of similar features. It's probably going to have maybe some with snow, some with trees, mountains that are tall and majestic. Regardless of the different variations in our our art or our drawing of that of those mountains, uh, no one that's giving an honest effort in that exercise is going to draw a mountain that is flimsy, or unstable, or tiny or unimpressive, right? I mean, if someone was trying to be funny, they might try to do something like that. But no one who's really giving it an effort is going to draw mountains that look like that. In this comparison, David says that God is majestic in his righteousness. His righteousness should inspire awe in our hearts and in our minds. Going back to Charles Spurgeon again, he says, firm and unmoved, lofty and sublime, as winds and hurricanes shake not an alp, so a mountain in the Alps, so as winds and hurricanes shake not an alp, so the righteousness of God is never in any degree affected by circumstances. He is always just. So I think that gets at what the heart of what David is emphasizing here is God is not going to change. He is majestic in his righteousness. He's not affected by circumstances, and we can trust him in that. So let's consider that God never stops being God. He always does what is right. He's worthy of our worship. The challenge comes for us um, when we suffer or when we see others close to us suffer. Um, We need to exercise our faith now and and grow in our trust of God and his righteousness because when when suffering comes, we're going to need that that faith uh, that, that he gives. So next we see that his judgments are like the great deep. The decisions that he makes uh, by which he rules the world. Like so much in the ocean that remains a mystery, so are his judgments or his decisions or his ways. If he were not righteous and were not faithful and loving, this might be a pretty scary thought in thinking about his uh, judgments being a bit of a mystery. But he is righteous and he is good and he is loving. And this is good news. We know that we can trust his wise judgments even if they're beyond our ability to understand. Paul says in Romans 11, 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So when we look around and it appears that the wicked that David describes in verse 4, or excuse me, the first four verses are carrying out their purposes unhindered, we can trust his sovereign care over our world. He is able to save and preserve the lives of people and animals alike. The wicked are not going to stop him, and they're not going to intervene in God carrying out his purposes. So going back to the questions that we asked just a moment ago, is God good? Yes. Is he wise? Absolutely. Will he change? Never. So we see the attributes of God highlighted in Scripture as we talked about David's kind of taking this like a diamond and turning it and looking at the different facets But it's important for us to note that he's not divided into parts. God is not 10% steadfast love and 25% righteous. He has all of his attributes all the time. And scripture isn't going to call out certain attributes as more important than others. We must remember that God's whole being includes all of his attributes. He's fully loving, merciful, just, and so forth. God's love is a faithful love. He's righteous, and his judgments are beyond our understanding. He is our protector and our salvation. So as we think about how we can apply this, let us worship him for who he is. 
Maybe one day this week an application for us would be take verse 5 and verse 6 and meditate on those verses, maybe even memorize those verses. Maybe do it as a family as you're sitting at the, at the dinner table. Take a couple minutes and, and, and memorize those verses as you seek to meditate on God's uh, glory and his character. So next we see here between verse 5 and 6 and 7 and 8, we see a transition from the immense to the immediate, as Derek Kidner says. We see his good gifts and the blessings of walking with him. The flow shifts from a focus on God to a focus to how he relates to his children. Verse 7, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of, children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. The value of the Lord's steadfast love is beyond our comprehension. It's precious. And we're the recipients and beneficiaries of his love. He is our refuge and our place to hide. So if we think for a moment, why, why do we need a refuge? What do we need a refuge from? First, we see David is probably reflecting back on a refuge from those that he's describing in verse 1 through verse 4 through, from the wicked. But we also need God as our refuge from the difficulties that we face in living from, that come from living in a fallen world. Recognizing that God is our refuge is foolish for us to think of not running to him uh, when, when, we, when we have a need. We won't spend a ton of time here, uh, but I would refer you back to, to Chris's sermon from a few weeks ago on Psalm 46. Uh, which Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So as I think about God as my refuge, I know that at times my heart is tempted to go towards so many other things first when facing trouble. When there's uncertainty at work, uh, we might be tempted and try to do so many other things before we stop and think and rest in the Lord. Pray for wisdom and pray for patience to act at the right time. Students, as school starts this year, you may face the pull to go your own way. And I would encourage you to remember what David is saying here, that the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of, of your wings, that you would find your refuge in him and call on him for strength. Next we see in verse 8, they feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. And verse 9, for with you is the fountain of life, in your light do we see light. We see here that David is emphasizing that God satisfies our hunger and thirst. The idea here is that the Lord's house is a place of feasting. Even more than a cool, refreshing drink on a hot day or a feast when we're hungry, the Lord delights in giving us what we need. We delight in cool water, water on a hot day, but it doesn't last. As we think about that, I'm reminded of what Jesus said in John chapter 4 to the woman at the well. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We see also in verse 9 that he gives life and light. We can only see him in the light that he gives. In your light do we see light. He says there at the end of verse 9, so think about this. Would you go outside, and in order to, to see the sun, would you turn the flashlight on on your phone in order to see the sun? No, of course not. Why is that? Because the sun has its own light, right? In the same way, God is the one who gives us light. We don't look inside of ourselves in order to see 
see God. God gives us light, and in the light that he gives, we see him for who he is in his glory. There is no source of life or light outside of our Lord. When we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth, um, after Christ returns, reminded of, uh, of these themes here from Revelation 21, starting with verse 5. And behold, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And then down in verse 23 and 24 of Revelation 21. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. Or, the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. So we see here that this idea that God is the one who gives us blessing of water and life and light, we know that all of that is only possible through Christ. It's only through Jesus that we can experience the good gifts that, as David describes them here. So I would encourage us to look to Christ. We talked about already John 4, where Jesus said, the water that, that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Also in John 5, 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Also in John chapter 8, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it's an important application for us to recognize what David is saying here, the blessings that come from walking in fellowship with the Lord. But that for us, that only comes through Jesus. And recognize that these are ours in Christ. The water, <clears throat> light, and life. So let's be thankful for his good gifts and the steadfast love that he gives. So as we refocus on, what, on who he is and what he's done, it'd be good for us to pray that God would help us to be thankful for, for Christ. The last section that we see here is the, uh, is the response to this reminder of who God is and what he's done. And here we see a, a prayer of faith verse 10 through verse 12. And this is the cry of a refocused heart. Verse 10. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. So a right response to the glimpse of the glory of God that we're given here is to trust him and depend on him in prayer. What we see from David is a faith-filled prayer for protection from the wicked. There are three main elements to this short prayer uh, in these three verses. David prays for God to continue his steadfast love. This is pointing us back to verse 5 through verse 9 and what David said about God's righteousness and his faithful, faithfulness. So why would he do this? I think it's important for us to take just a moment and, and ask that question and think about that for a moment. So if God... If, God's words already said that God's faithfulness is not going to come to an end. Why would David pray that God would continue his faithfulness? 
there's some things that we know uh, that it's good to be reminded of. We know that God does not change and cannot stop being faithful and he cannot stop his, his love. God wants us to, to ask him for help. This is part of our relationship with him and walking with him. God wants us to pray and God wants us to talk with him. God wants us to remember who he is. God knows our need and Jesus still teaches us to pray persistently. God works through the prayers of his, his people. And I think that's the important thing for us to note here is that even though God is, we know that God is in control, we know that he's always faithful, God works through the prayers of his people and, has, um, and teaches us to pray and pray persistently. So we shouldn't hesitate to pray for God to act according to his character and to do what he said he would do. It's appropriate for us to pray uh, what God has promised and to ask God to continue acting as he said that he would. And this is a pattern that we see, uh, see in Scripture. Spurgeon said that this prayer is the heart of the believer asking precisely that which the heart of... <clears throat> let me start over. <laughs> this prayer is the heart of the believer asking precisely that which the heart of his God is prepared to grant. It is well when the petition is but the reflection of the promise. So it's good for us when we pray to reflect what God has promised. Here God has, has promised that he will continue his steadfast love. And when we pray, it's good for us to say, God, continue your steadfast love towards me. It's an expression of our faith, but also God works through the means of, of the prayers of his people. Next we see that David prays for protection from the wicked. Verse 11, let not the foot of arrogance come upon me. This is pointing us back to verse 1 through verse 4. David knows that he needs help, and he's crying out to God for that help. Then next we see that David prays in light of the end and reflects on what will happen to the wicked. Those who reject the Lord will meet their final end, and this is a statement of David's faith. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. So these enemies of the Lord that he talked about in verse 1 through verse 4, David trusts that in the end, they're going to fall and they're not going to rise again. They're not going to get back up. It's helpful to know the end of a story. Sometimes we might be watching a, a TV show or a movie as a family, and I'll say, hey, you know there's another movie that that character's in. Don't worry too much. We know what, what's going to happen. They're going to make it. They're going to live to see another day, or, not the, sh or the show wouldn't, you know, wouldn't continue, or there wouldn't be a, a sequel, you know, those kinds of things. It's helpful for us to know the end. And here we see David reflecting on the end, that God is going to win. He's going to be victorious. And this is a a reflection of David's faith. So how do we respond here? Let's be encouraged to pray. Pray remembering the character of God. Seek refuge in him. And trust that God is working out his purposes with the end in mind. So as we pull, all, pull everything together and close, there are times when our focus is off and we need to refocus on the Lord. And this passage is one of many that helps us to do that. It helps us to see what life looks like outside of Christ it helps us to see the glory of God, and it helps us to encourage us to trust him in prayer. So final application, there is hope for those, there's hope in Christ for those who don't fear the Lord. If you're here without Jesus, please trust him today. As believers, we celebrate the glory, goodness, and steadfast love of God. We delight in his goodness, and we're thankful. And we can pray that God would help us to grow in thanksgiving. And we can be encouraged to pray. 
Maybe spend a few extra minutes this week reflecting on the goodness of God and his character and his steadfast love. And then look to the end with faith, trusting that he, uh, that he is faithful and that his enemies uh, will one day, uh, one day be defeated. Christian counselor and writer David Pallison said of Psalm 36, With these words, David attempts to capture the wonder and power of God's love. It is something he wrote about frequently throughout his life. Yet though he piles superlative upon superlative and pushes the limits of language, David seems to know that the love of God can never be adequately described in words. All he can do is invite others to come and taste for themselves. Let's seek to do this as we worship him and trust him. Let's, take, let's seek to taste and know that he is good. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your word, how it teaches us, how it reminds us, God, of who you are. You are righteous, you're holy, you're faithful, you're just. Your steadfast love reaches to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. God, I pray that you would help us to rest in the good news of the gospel, that we would not try to make it on our own. We would recognize that we can't save ourselves, that we are dependent on you. God, I pray that you would help us to have the fear of the Lord before our eyes and that we would walk with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.